Good morning, everyone. How's it going? I, I see many of the youth here. Sorry. <laughs> they, they, they're going on retreat, but um, they got snowed out, which is a really weird sentence to say in California. But um, no, I mean, I went to Bible school in Colorado in the Rocky Mountains, and so I, I think I've told stories about it before. We were at like, um, I think we were at like 7,000 feet above sea level in the Rocky Mountains. And uh, <laughs> basically like our pipes would freeze. And so for three days straight, we wouldn't have plumbing and we we're just like holed up in these cabins and it was really, really atrocious. But, but it's also like one of the most beautiful places that I've ever like been in my life. So um, I learned how to chop wood there, which is like, Honestly, if I, this, I love doing this more than anything in the world. Chopping wood is extremely satisfying. Um, but let me, okay, enough jibber-jabber. Uh, let me go ahead and read our passage for today. This is from Exodus chapter 17, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandments of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there is no water for the people to drink. Therefore the, Moses, the, whoa, therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Uh, this is God's word. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, I pray through your word you would reveal yourself in the ways that we need. Um, I pray you would humble us before you. Um, and then you would lift us up and encourage us with your grace. Um, I pray we would know who you are um, through this text and that you would really work powerfully in revealing yourself, that we might trust you, that we might remember you in everything we do, and that would really change everything. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, um, right off the bat, uh, how many of you would say that you have Excellent memories. Who has a really good memory? Raise your hand. Okay, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being like, what was your question, Daniel? And 10 being like, the, oh, Grace is a 1. <laughs> Grace is like, you just forgot, forgot what I was asking. 10 being like, like okay, uh, I remember what I had for dinner when I was 3 years old on Tuesday, 1994. <laughs> wow, Amber. 
Um, so Amber, you think you have a really good memory? No. <laughs> don't, be, don't just be humble. Don't be humble. No, okay, so uh, memory is a really interesting thing. I, I have a weird memory. Like, I remember certain things very well. Um, I actually have a mind for numbers to some degree. When I was a kid, I, would, um, I was super into statistics. So um, Elisha's like this, and Dan is also like this, where um, when I, I, I got this huge box of hockey cards at a flea market, and I would just go through hockey cards and memorize. I, I don't even, like, I played a little bit of street hockey. I don't even really like, I know, you, I know you're into hockey, but I liked hockey in third grade, and then... I met my true love basketball and it was over with. I never looked at those hockey cards again. But what I, what I realized was I was so fascinated at looking at the numbers on the cards. And so I could remember like how many goals, how many assists. Um, I could remember like the goalkeeper stats, et cetera. And then I had like a lot of them. There were probably like 500 cards and I would just like read through them over and over again. And so I'm the type of person who would really be into stonks if I wasn't a pastor, you know, like, for kids, like stocks, right? Um, you look, you like looking at stock tickers. Um, I'm, I'm still really into basketball statistics. Like I like looking at points per game. I like looking at box scores, and I remember a lot of them. Uh, but I don't, I don't know if you guys know this. Dan is a freak. Like Dan, his memory is so weird because Dan, like I remember numbers and like more abstract concepts, but Dan remembers like. All, like in real in real time, the stuff that's around. So I wonder if this, you know, like the Myers Briggs. There are people who are, um, what is it? Like intuitive and what's the other one? Uh, it's the I N sensory, right? Sensing or whatever it might be. Uh, where the sensory person like is very into their senses and what's tangible around them, and then the intuitive person is in their head. So I am definitely in my head, and I remember stuff in my head. Dan, like this is so crazy. We go to all these Christian conferences, right? So our church goes to like youth retreat and DTC and like these different things. And if you ask Dan, like who attended the conference in 2015 when we were at Camp Maymac and like tell us the roster of people who attended, he could tell you a lot of the people who were there. And then, no, like you do, you just do it naturally. I'm, I'm exaggerating, he's not, he doesn't know everything. But another example, um, he used to play like co-ed flag football. And if you asked him on the second season, the third game, on the fourth down play, right before halftime, what play did they what play did you do and what happened? He could tell you. I don't know if you could, I don't know if you could do it on the spot, but he just remembers these things randomly. Now, um, what's really interesting is regardless of how good your memory is, um, What's really interesting in reading through these passages in Exodus is the author, the, the author of this Hebrew narrative is actually doing something really interesting where he's making a point about our spiritual memory. And he's saying something very particular, which we'll talk about it. Let me, get, let me just do the three points. So the first point is that spiritual amnesia plus thirst will lead to quarreling, and we'll talk about what that means. The second point, we're gonna talk about memory care and then the third point, we're going to ask the question, is the Lord among us or not? So uh, let's go ahead and get into it. So the next slide. Uh, I don't know if when I was reading that passage, you guys were like deja vu. I mean, haven't we already read this passage before? Because again, 
in, in the book of Exodus up to this point, there has been a cycle that has been repeating. And on the face of things, this cycle might seem like tedious and kind of ridiculous, where you look at Israel and you look at the way God interacts with them and you find these people kind of laughable or ridiculous. But, but the author, what the author is actually trying to do is they're, they're trying to repeat, repeat themselves to emphasize a point about all of us, where in the wilderness, what we learn about ourselves is that we have spiritual amnesia. And there is such a strong tendency that we have to forget what God has done right before, um, like yesterday. And so I might be able to remember all these hockey stats, but do I remember what God has done in the past in my life? And then do I use that to get through the wilderness? And so when you look at this cycle, like this is really an in, really interesting, I love storytelling, I love books, I love movies. And if you think about the way that the artist who writes the, this book is telling the story, what you'll see is there's a lot of repetition, right? If you look at chapter 15, what happens in chapter 15? Before chapter 15, God delivers his people out of Egypt, right? And in chapter 15, uh, Miriam sings this song. So she basically proclaims a song of deliverance where she has crafted a way to remember what God has done in delivering them from Egypt miraculously. She's crafted a song to remember it. She's praising God, and she has all the people sing the song together. And then as they're going out of Egypt into the wilderness. And then they get to a place where the water is bitter, and they start grumbling. And then what happens? Does anyone remember? This was quite a few weeks ago when Dan preached on it. Uh, The water, which was bitter and undrinkable, um, became purified. So God had Moses purify the water so that it became sweet and they could drink it, right? What happened in chapter 16? They're going through the wilderness. They have water. Now they're hungry. They're going through the wilderness for days and days and days without eating. They're starving. Like, I mean, I think about this. Like, your kid doesn't have enough to eat. Your cow doesn't have enough to eat. This is really really terrible and would have been really difficult. And they start to grumble again, right? And then, so what, what does God do? They say, like, they grumble against God, and it's really interesting. They say to themselves, wasn't it so much better back in Egypt where we had the meat pots and we had all the bread we could want? You know, it's like Olive Garden. All you can eat breadsticks in Egypt. It's so great, so amazing. But, like, do you know how crazy that is? Do you know how crazy that is? Because what were they in Egypt? Slaves. They didn't get all the food that they wanted. It wasn't all you can eat. They barely got enough to live. They did backbreaking labor. And not only that, the Egyptians were threatened by the people of Israel, and so they even like killed their children to keep the population from growing out of control. I mean, why on earth would they look fondly on those days in Egypt? Because they have spiritual amnesia. Because when they're in the suffering, when you're in the wilderness and you experience scarcity, when you don't know what God is doing, and you, for, you just forget everything, like it just totally leaves your head, and then all of a sudden you look back on this terrible time and you think, it would have been so great if we could just be a slave again. And so um, my, my favorite preacher, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, gives a sermon uh, illustration on, from the book of Romans where... Um, You know, he kind of says something along the lines of, like, you can free the people from slavery, but you can't get the slavery 
out of the people easily, except through a process. And so he uses this uh, really interesting historical example. In America, there is the abolition of slavery, right? Like the Emancipation um, Proclamation and the acts that freed the slaves. But even after the slaves were legally free, many of them didn't know what to do with themselves. And so they would stay on the plantation with their masters. And even though they were legally free, they would just do the exact same thing they were doing before because they didn't know what to do with themselves. In this old movie called Shawshank Redemption, there is this prisoner named Brooks, and I, I mean, maybe like some of you older people know this one, uh, where one of the prisoners is like a really old man, and he's in prison for his entire life, and then finally he gets uh, reprieved, and he goes and starts working at a supermarket. His name is Brooks, right? And this, this man doesn't know what to do with himself, and so eventually he just, like, he, he dreams of going back into prison because he's been in prison for his entire life and he doesn't know what it's like to be outside. He doesn't know anyone, there's routine, all of his friends are in prison, and so eventually he commits suicide. And Morgan Freeman's character says that he was institutionalized, which means he had become so used to and reliant on being behind bars that he couldn't handle the freedom. And so in the same way, what's so interesting is, even as Christians, we often, like go into the freedom of Christ where we are sons and daughters of God, we are free, but then we look back on what it was, on being slaves fondly for some reason. And it's because we have spiritual amnesia. So they look back on Egypt fondly. They're like, I wish we were back there. And then what happens? They grumble, deja vu, right? They grumble for water, God provides. They grumble for food, God sends manna. And then we get to our passage for today. And do you know what's happening? They're thirsty, and so they grumble again for the third time. Now, what's interesting is when you're looking at Hebrew narratives, so uh, go to the next slide. When you, when you read these stories, something I, that really unlocked the Old Testament for me, the Hebrew Bible, is to realize kind of the writing style or the artistic form, the literary style that Hebrew narratives take. Um, there, there are different types of stories, right? So let me give you one type of story. There's like the young adult novel, okay? And, you know, I don't see, like, I'm so old. I don't, do you kids, do you, do you guys read Twilight anymore? You probably don't even, like, know what that is. Like, so it's like about, like, it's like a vampire romance, and it's, like, really dumb. So I actually read Twilight, the first one, and then I watched a bunch of the movies, and it was because, like, you know, because the girls at my college wanted us to go. I'm like, oh, I like girls. Uh, maybe I'll go to see this movie, and maybe something will happen. So li literally, that's what happened. Um, and I hated it. Because, like, what happens in Twilight is Twilight is a very interior book where it is all from the perspective of Bella, who's, like, a whiny teenager. And she's so annoying. And it's all, like, it's all about how she feels. And she has so many feelings. And then Edward is so good-looking, and he's so mysterious, and he's, like... And it's like, that's literally all the book is about. And it's first person interior, right? That's a very different book than, okay, I'm gonna use a ridiculous example. There's, a, there's an author uh, named Cormac McCarthy, and the only chance any of you have read any of his books is probably in like AP Lit as a junior or something like that. Um, he, he wrote the books that got turned into a Coen's brother movie named No Country for Old Men, which was, it was a, like an Academy Award winning movie. And his books are like westerns, 
and they are extremely alienating. Where in Twilight, you see the inner thoughts of Bella. In Cormac McCarthy's like No Country for Old Men or Blood Meridian, you have no clue what the character is thinking because he's trying to communicate how we are kind of like adrift in the universe and like they're, they're so like alienated from other people and it's, it's like very violent and strange. Um, and he writes using this really like biblical tone, like really interesting. If any of you guys are literary nerds, um, you should try reading Cormac McCarthy. He's very philosophical and interesting. But these are two very different writing styles. So Hebrew narrative is more like Cormac McCarthy than it is like Stephanie Myers in Twilight, where you have to infer what's going on inside of the characters using only a few, langu- uh, only a few words, where it says, um, there's one passage in Genesis where it says, uh, Rachel was very beautiful, but Leah had weak eyes. And what, what is going on in this passage using great economy of language, which is like the opposite of what I do. I wish I was more terse and succinct when I speak, but I'm, I'm not. It is what it is. I'm trying, okay? Um, this is not my style. In their style, they communicate so much with just a few words. And so Rachel was very beautiful in form and figure. So her face was beautiful, her body was attractive, but Leah had weak or soft eyes. And so there's a contrast being drawn between these two characters where Rachel is super duper hot and then Leah, there's something that's like undesirable about her. And so they, the Hebrew authors can portray such a depth of characterization using only a few words. Another thing that we'll notice is in this Exodus narrative, three different times so far, there has been the same pattern. And there is a pattern of threes that happens in the Hebrew language and in the Bible. It's not just in, the, in uh, Hebrew, it's in Greek too, but it's in, I mean, it's even like in English, right? Where when you're telling a joke, it's always like three XYZ people walked into a bar, right? Or when you're telling a joke, the punchline is always on the third thing, right? I'm, I'm just explaining to you how jokes work. It, it's kind of like a rhythm or convention that we're used to. And so what is the Hebrew author trying to communicate through this repetition? He's trying to say, first of all, it's really genius. Um, He's trying to make us feel what it's like to be in the desert. Because the desert is a tedious, repetitive place where scarcity is not just a problem for one day. Scarcity is a problem every single day. Every single day, you're walking. And if you can imagine walking through like a vast desert, it's like, it's totally like Aladdin or something where it's like, I, I just imagine like sand dunes. I don't know if it was actually like that, but I imagine sand dunes. They're walking through the sand. Every dune looks like the last one. They're like hallucinating, you know, like there are mirages and you just keep on walking one step after another. Day and night, everything is the same. There are no landmarks. Step by step, step after step after step, everything is the same, no landmarks. And you constantly are battling with scarcity where there's no food, there's no water. And so by repeating the same kind of scarcity in three different accounts, the author is making us feel how repetitive and mundane and torturous it is to walk through the wilderness. But he's not only doing that, he's saying that these people, and he's by, like, by inference, we could say that we are like Israel, where in order for us to learn, we have to make the same mistake over and over and over again. 
right? They don't learn anything from these three events in a row. They don't learn anything from it. Because every single time they grumble, every single time God delivers them, and then they just repeat the cycle over and over again. It's really, really interesting. This is saying something so profound about, about us as people. Um, do you guys know, like, do you guys know, uh, so let me, okay, let me, let me give you one example. So let's talk about memory again. Uh, there, there are, I'm going to use two illustrations. Let me start with Finding Nemo. So we are like Dory in Finding Nemo. Okay, Dory is played by Ellen DeGeneres. Honestly, this movie is probably too old for all you young kids. To, how many of you, the, like, below 18 have seen Finding Nemo? Okay, so, so Pixar has some staying power then, or I, this movie had some staying power. I never know what Pixar movies are going to, like, stand the test of time, but apparently this one has done pretty well. In Finding Nemo, there's a fish named Marlin who's a clownfish, and he's trying to find his son Nemo who's lost. And so he runs into this fish named Dory, and Dory suffers from a condition called anterograde amnesia, okay? So there's retrograde, and okay, I'm not gonna explain. Anterograde amnesia is basically she cannot form new memories, and so she remembers who she is, and she remembers like some stuff about her, her family, whatever it might be, but she can't remember what has just happened. And so she's having this conversation with, um, Marlin, who's the dad, and the dad is telling her about his quest to find his son Nemo, and so she's like, oh, you know, I know, I'm gonna, let me help you find your son, and then she starts swimming away, and then Marlin's swimming after her, and then she's just going, like, going along, she's swimming very purposefully, very driven, and all of a sudden she starts, like, slowing down, and she's looking around, and then she turns around and sees this fish following her, and she's like, 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 what are you and then she looks kind of scared, and then she starts, like, swimming off in that direction. And Marlon's like, what, what? And so he starts going fast after her. And then at some point, she just turns around and is like, what? What are you doing? Why are you following me? And what's the deal? Like, she totally forgot what he had just said to her five seconds ago. And this is honestly a picture of what it's like being with God for us. And I remember exactly, I mean, I'm like this. You're like this. But let me just give you some examples of what this might look like for us. Um, when we go through, and this is, the, this is the formula, right? Spiritual amnesia plus scarcity or thirst equals quarreling, where when you forget what God has done in the past, and then you go through suffering in your present, all of a sudden the only thing that is real is how God is not coming through for you right now in this moment. And you completely forget the millions of things that God has done in the past to care for you, right? Your feelings become the most real thing in the world, and none of God's past acts like come to mind. And you just feel like God is you know, out to get you, or God is wrong. And, and this, this leads to the quarreling, right? And so this can take a lot of, this can take a, like a lot of different forms, where, um, like, anyway, one, one example, in this passage that's really interesting to me is this whole water example, right? So they get thirsty, and so they grumble, and they quarrel with God. But do you know what the passage was right before this? It was the daily provision of manna. Now, I don't know if the author is actually talking about this. Like, I don't know if the author means this, but the routine that Israel would go through is in the morning, God would provide food for them. In the evening, God would provide food for them, right? And so... For these people, 
it takes about like probably a day or so without water to be thirsty, right? And they're complaining about not having water, but they're not complaining about being hungry. Why? Because God is providing manna for them twice a day. And so here's the crazy thing. They are just like Dory, where I, I imagine this. It's like in the morning, they were hungry. They wake up, God gave them manna, they ate the manna, and then by the afternoon, they were thirsty, and so they were like, why doesn't God ever provide for me? Like, why have, you, why have you abandoned us? Isn't it so ridiculous to some degree? God has just provided for you in that way, and then immediately right after, you're like, you're like Dory. You're like, what are you, why are you following me? Like, what's going on? This is so crazy. Let me, t- let me talk about another element of uh, spiritual amnesia. So uh, when I was in seminary, I, I went to a counselor from a peri- for a, a period of time where I was working on some issues I had. And there's one thing that the counselor said that really has always stood out to me. I'm a depressive, kind of melancholy person by nature. And he said to me, you irrationally select negative evidence. You know what, you know what I'm saying? Where you... The bad stuff that happens to you is so large in your perspective that you can't even remember the good things that are happening. And it's irrational. And that really got me because I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm a smart person. I'm very logical and reasonable, right? No, no, no. I'm not. I'm irrational because the bad stuff has so much more of a pull on me than the good stuff. And so, you know, psychologists use examples where they say when you're parenting kids, It is so important, and part of this might be cultural because this is not how Chinese culture operates generally. Um, Maybe it is in some families, but in, uh, in Western culture, psychologists say that there's a ratio of like positive encouragements uh, and criticisms that you should follow, where I think the number is you should encourage your kid about four times for every one time you criticize them. It, how's that ratio for you <laughs> kids who have Chinese parents? Is that pretty accurate? Do your parents... Okay, what, what's the ratio for you Chinese kids with Chinese parents, like second gen? Um, if you're anything like my parents, uh, verbal encouragement was rare. And my mom was quite... Like, my mom and my dad were quite critical. Um, and the, the, the... So I'm not saying, like... I'm not saying that one way is better than the other. But there's an interesting point that the psychologists make where they say the one criticism will lodge in your brain far longer than all of the encouragements. And so what they're saying is parents, in order to make your kid feel safe and loved, no matter what happens, you have to overwhelm them with encouragement and love. And you know what's going to happen? Even if you do that, even if you do 10 times more encouragement than you do criticism, when you criticize them, they will never forget it. And that's because we irrationally select negative evidence. And the negative evidence is so much more powerful for us. And that's because there's a, there's a deep part of us that's so insecure. And we deeply need to feel approval and worth from people. And this worth can only come from God. It can only come from God. What else? Um, we uh, we irrationally select negative evidence, so we remember short-term and long-term grievances, we forget short-term and long-term deliverances. And this is how our lives work, works with God as well. And I'm totally like this. And so what God is doing in the wilderness, if you guys remember from past sermons, is God is 
intentionally, repetitively demonstrating to them his provision over and over and over and over again because that's how much repetition it takes for things to sink in. That's how long it takes for us to learn. And so, you know, I love playing guitar, love playing basketball. Do you know how much you have to practice to gain fluency in an instrument? Or do you know how much you have to practice to become better at shooting free throws or layups or dribbling or whatever it is? Over and over and over again. And so in the same way, the, the antidote to spiritual amnesia is memory care. And it involves repetition. But let's talk, let's talk more about what that actually looks like. Um, and we haven't got to the last part of the, um, the formula where spiritual amnesia plus thirst equals quarreling. And we'll, we're going to talk about what quarreling means. But I just want to say this. Th this is the punchline passage. This is the third passage where Israel quarrels. And what happens is every time they grumble, their grumbling becomes more intense. So if you look at the first passage, it's only uh, chapter 15, verse 22 through 27. It's a relatively short passage, and it says they grumble, then God provides, everything's fine. The next passage is longer, where their grumbling becomes more detailed, and they say, I miss the meat pots and the bread we had in Egypt. It becomes more detailed. The, the passage of God's provision is much longer, and then when you get to this passage, even though the passage is short, this passage is way more intense. The intensity of their grumbling is way more intense, and the Hebrew author even uses a different word, quarreling. And this word quarreling, when you read it, you think it means to fight with someone, but that's not what it means. It actually means you make a legal accusation against someone. So they are suing Moses, and they are suing God, and they want to bring him to court, and you even see that where it says, Moses says, they're even getting close to stoning me, where they're saying, Moses, you're the leader, you're the representative of God, you led us into the wilderness to die of thirst, so if we're going to die, you're going to die first. They're going to execute him for mutiny or treason or whatever you want to call it. And so this is the thing. If you continue in this cycle of spiritual amnesia, things will intensify over time, where you get angrier and angrier and angrier with God, and you more and more are unable to see the, neg the positive provision of God because the negative evidence is so overwhelming you. And what's so great is we need memory care, and this is also what the author is doing. So let's look at the next um, illustration of memory. So if we have spiritual amnesia, how do we deal with it? Let me tell you about another you're going to be so excited, Jeremiah. Let me tell you about another movie that has to do with memory. There is, an, there is a director named Christopher Nolan who made the best superhero movie ever, which is Batman the Dark Knight. Batman the Dark Knight is the best superhero movie ever made. And one of Christopher Nolan's lesser-known works from early on in his career was a movie called Memento. And the word memento, what is it? It's some kind of souvenir or keepsake that helps you remember something. And so people talk about memento mori, where it's like, remember that you're going to die. Um, memento is a movie where there is a man named Guy Pierce, or played by Guy Pierce, who has anterograde amnesia. And so he remembers some things about who he is. He remembers that someone killed his wife. 
And the whole movie is kind of like a mystery where he's trying to, like, he's a detective trying to find clues to figure out who killed his wife and to get revenge against that person. But the thing is, he cannot form short-term memories. And so he only remembers what happened before that event where his wife got, murder, uh, got murdered. And so he goes around, and it's, the, it's just like Dory. He's talking to this hotel person, and uh, he's like, oh yeah, I want to I be charged, like here, charge my credit card for a night's stay. And this is kind of like a shady hotel or whatever. And so he finishes going through the transaction, and then he forgets that he did it. So he's like, oh, hello, I'd like to check in. I'd like a room. And the hotel person is kind of shady, so then they charge him again. And then the, 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 he's like, did you charge me again? And he's like, whatever, you won't remember it anyway. And it's true, right? He actually has to speed up the speed of his conversations because by the end he gets, uh, by the end of his sentence, he'll forget what he said already. And so do you know what he does to try to, oh, so here, here's why it matters for the plot. If you're a detective, you are gathering clues and trying to arrange evidence together to, to make a narrative about what happened, right? You're trying to find clues to support your hypothesis. The problem is every time he finds a clue, he forgets about it. And so the investigation would be lead to a dead end. So what he has to do is he has to make, he has to communicate with his future self, which will forget everything, by leaving behind mementos. That's the name of the movie. Oh my gosh, mementos. So what he does is he puts tattoos on himself, he writes handwritten notes. He takes Polaroids of like suspicious people where it's like, you know, follow this person and then there's a picture of the person, right? And he has to make all of these efforts to deal with his anterograde amnesia. Now, we can learn from Christopher Nolan and Guy Pearce in this movie, but if you notice, this is exactly what's happening in the Exodus narrative. Right after Israel is delivered from, Mo from Egypt, Miriam writes down a song. She sings a song, a beautiful, artistic, praise song about God's deliverance. And do you know what? We still have that song, which is incredible, which means she sang it, but they transmitted that song for thousands and thousands of years so that we could read it in scripture. And so if you look at uh, Hebrew culture, uh, they would memorize huge chunks of the Bible. They were an oral culture, so they would tell stories, and these stories would be mementos to remember what God did in the past. And then if you look at chapter 16, there's, jar, there's the jar of manna, where after God miraculously provided manna in the wilderness, he, God told Moses to get a jar, put manna in it, and keep it for all the generations to come. So this was a keepsake or a souvenir or a memento by which they could remember in the wilderness God provides manna. And that was for all of the future generations when they were exiled from Israel, when they were going through terrible persecution and war and famine. They could look, they could remember that jar of manna and say, God will provide for us. It's a keepsake. It's a way to remember because we have spiritual amnesia and we tend to forget. And then in the passage right after this, um, I'm not going to talk about this passage, but they have a battle with the Amalekites. And God miraculously allows them to defeat the Amalekites. And what does Moses do after this battle? He builds an altar, which is basically a way to remember that God provided for them again. And so, again, 
Spiritual amnesia, that's part of the point. It is so easy for us to forget what God has done. We, we always select the most present evidence, which is often negative, and then we grumble, and then the grumbling leads even to accusation and anger and bitterness and resentment towards God. What's the way to care for our memories? What's the way to remember? It's by making mementos. And so, what does this look like in our lives? Uh, you can look at the cycle, how it interrupts the cycle. So scarcity leads to grumbling, leads to deliverance, and then it leads to more scarcity, and then it leads to quarreling. Or a different cycle that you can go through with the memento is scarcity. When you go through difficult times in your life, what do you do? You try to remember what God has done in the past. Like, you write it down. You think about the times where you were in the same position, where you're like, God, I am in such a mess. I'm freaking out. What are you doing? Why have you abandoned me? And then, you know what? In your past, you have moments where God came through for you, and then all of a sudden afterwards, after God came through in that wilderness, you said to yourself, oh, now I see. Now I get what you were doing. But then you're in the wilderness again, things are really bad, and then you're like, you freak out, and then you quarrel with God. It's because you failed to use the memento to remember it. You failed to remember God's provision. But when you remember, it helps you to trust, okay? Let me use another example. Do you guys have uh, flaky or, um, what's, what's the opposite of punctual? Like, a tardy friends? People who are not punctual uh, in your life. So, do you guys ever do a thing where it's like you arrange to meet at, with your friend at like whatever, McDonald's or whatever, and you're like, oh, we're going to meet at 12.30. And then you go like 10 different times. They never, ever show up on time. Every single time they come at 1 o'clock. What is the sensible thing to do after they continue to repeat this pattern? You start to trust them less, Right? You start not to trust them. They're not going to be punctual. They're flaky. I'll come at 12.45, or I'll come at 1, or I'll get mad at them because they're not punctual, right? But on the other hand, if you have someone who is so incredibly trustworthy, every single time you've met with them, they have always shown up five minutes before you got there, and you show up on time. And then one time, you, you go to that place, and for some reason, they're not there. And you're like, what's going on? What is your thought in your, in your head with that trustworthy person as opposed to the tardy person? You assume because they are trustworthy and reliable and consistent and not flaky, they have a good reason for not being there at that time, right? If it's someone who's flaky, you're just like, ah, they just did it again. And that's why I always bring a book and I'm just like, you know, reading. What, I'm going to make good use of my time while I'm waiting for this person to show up who's always late. Now, with God... Which one is God for you, right? Is God trustworthy? Have you seen God show up over and over again? If you haven't, so for like those of you who aren't Christian or who are younger or who go through a special suffering, like maybe you don't think that God is trustworthy and like that's fine. Uh, but if you have already seen God work, it makes sense. It is reasonable. It is rational for you to gain and grow in trust. And when God doesn't seem like he's showing up, it's actually reasonable and rational to trust him, not to doubt him, if you remember what his character is like and what he's done in the past. And so let me get uh, a little bit practical. 
So this is stuff you should do. I don't always say stuff that you should do, but here's some stuff you should do. Figure out what helps you remember God. So different people, different stuff works for you. Uh, one thing that I've done in the past is I've journaled, and I don't have a very structured journaling habit uh, where I was looking at some of my old journals and I have like no clue what I was saying because it's so like free-flowing association stream of consciousness. But there are some things that I understand where I felt like so lost with God. And I asked these questions in my journal where I'm like, where are you, God? And then a later journal entry basically said, now I understand. Now I get it. This is the reason why God was doing these things. And I can think of many events in my life where I didn't understand the moment. Later on, I came to understand and this should help me trust God in the future when I go through more suffering or difficulty. Uh, second, you don't have to remember alone. When you look at what the Israelites did, they would have sang these songs together, and they would have had this jar of manna, and they would have held it up before the entire congregation of people and said, remember how God has been so good to our entire nation, to all of us. And so there would have been special people like the high priest, he would have held up these mementos and rem reminded people, remember who God is, remember how he's trustworthy. Even when we're exiled, even when we're going through famine, we can trust God, we can hope in him. He doesn't seem like he's showing up now, but he's trustworthy, so we can go through trusting him. And then the final thing I would say is one of the ways that I think is really important for us to remember is actually from by you guys having a practice of testimony giving. Uh, what is a testimony? The, a testimony is not a prepared speech that you ha are required to give before you're baptized. A testimony is simply being a witness to what God has done and telling someone else about it. And so this can be as small, as informal as you want, or it could be like before you're baptized, this is how I became a Christian. But to be a testimony giver is someone who, when God does something for you, when God answers a prayer, you want to tell other people. And your testimony, what God is doing, is an incredible way that he encourages people who are in the wilderness. And so this is something that um, I actually want to do in our group. And I'm not, I'm not going to push this to happen, but I would love if we could use part of our service uh, to have some of you share your testimony or testimonies about what God has been doing. And we've done this in the past. So if ever God is doing something really special or God has got you through something really amazing, just come up here before service, tell me, tell Dan, and say, can I share really briefly about what God has done? And it, honestly, depending on what you have to share, it doesn't have to be brief. Like, we don't have to preach a sermon. We can just hear your testimony of what God has done. And that is often so encouraging and edifying to people. It's right for you to do that. God intends for you to give praise to him by telling other people what God has done. And this helps us collectively care for our memories. The other thing I would say is we should remember things that God has done in our church, in, our, in this institution, South Valley. And like when, this is why history really matters, because I heard the founder of CCIC talk a little bit about what it was like when God planted the first Chinese church in Christ in Silicon Valley. 
It came out of a San Jose State Bible study. There was this long history and story. And basically, it was like the, the other churches in the area, they don't speak Mandarin. And so there were all of these, these Chinese people at, who were having Bible study and becoming Christian. And there wasn't a place for them to worship together with people who could understand their language. And so they started this church. And then this church planted another church, and then planted another church, and then planted our church. And all of these different people have been like blessed in so many amazing ways through what God has done in planting these, this, these sister churches. And so when we think back on this, when we come to like times like now where you know Dan and I, we might feel discouraged or we look at forces in the world and we look at wars and destabilizing political factors and economic you know, rumblings, and when we look at all these things, are we afraid? Are we anxious? Sure. But do we remember what God has done? Or we say, oh, you know, like no one in Silicon Valley is Christian. Oh my gosh, what are we gonna do? Everything's gonna die. Like maybe, but does that mean God isn't working? Does that mean God couldn't do something incredible and bring spiritual vitality to an entire city or an entire region? He could totally do that. He could totally do that. And he's done stuff like that in the past. But he doesn't always want that. He, sometimes he just wants us to be faithful and show up. And the less visible, the less flashy ways of transformation, those are just as real. And those are just as miraculous and powerful. Like, I wonder if we were to make a tally of all the people who got baptized in Chinese Church in Christ churches, what that number would be over the years that our churches have. God does miracles. God saves people. That is why we can trust him. Finally, man, I didn't even get to this part. Um, I want you to look at why this is an intensification. This is actually a courtroom scene. So uh, if you look at who is on trial, this... The, Man, I, I didn't even get to this, but a lot of my study was so incredible when I was reading this passage because for a long time when I read this story, I thought that Israel was putting Moses on trial. But when you look really carefully, there's actually something very different happening. So what, is, what happens in the story? Israel grumbles. Moses says, they're going to stone me. God tells Moses to do something. He says, gather the elders Bring the staff which with, with which you struck the Nile and go on to Mount Horeb. And then God says, I will stand before you. And then he tells Moses to strike the rock. There's a lot of symbolism here we don't understand. Number one, gathering the elders means there is a courtroom. The elders are the jury. They're the ones who make decisions about punishment. You're going to court. Someone is on trial. Get the staff. The staff is a symbol of corporal punishment, where the staff punished, the staff was God's judgment on the gods of Egypt when he delivered Israel out of Egypt. And he turned the Nile into blood. He removed fresh drinking water for them as judgment on their refusal to let Israel leave Egypt. And so there is a jury. There is an execution staff. There's a sword. There's something that's going to kill someone. And then Moses is standing there with the staff. Do you know what that means? Moses is not the one who is being accused. He is the one who executes the judgment. He is the judge. Moses is the judge. The elders are the jury. Who is the one who is getting accused? It's God. It's actually God. Israel is accusing God 
of abandoning them. And they ask this question in verse 7, is the Lord among us or not? Are you hanging us out to dry? Are you leaving us to die here in the wilderness? And so they are accusing God. Now, how could God have responded to this accusation? And this is what's so incredible. He could have very easily said, are you dumb? I just gave you manna. I just rescued you from Egypt. Why are you accusing me of this? You're blaspheming. I'm going to strike you down. He very easily could have said that. But he doesn't. He goes on trial and he stands there. And when Moses strikes the rock, God is basically saying, I'm willing to be unjustly executed because I want to show you how much I love and care for you. And even though you do something that's so spiritually forgetful, that's so foolish, I'm willing to stand there. And when they strike, when Moses strikes God, do you know what comes out? Salvation, deliverance, water. In the very moment that they're, his, they're God's enemies and that they do something terrible and they want to kill him, when they strike him, judgment doesn't come out. He doesn't strike them back. He doesn't curse them. Water comes out and he delivers them from their thirst. And as I was reading this, like obviously, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, the rock that they drank from was Christ. Where, when, and this is crazy, I did, I did not plan this, but I was doing my Bible reading and I was reading Matthew chapter 27, which is where Jesus is basically being put on trial. And there's this little phrase that happens over and over again where it says, the elders of Israel and the high priest accused Jesus. The elders showed up. The high priest showed up. It's another courtroom where in this courtroom, God in the desert is on trial. In that courtroom, Israel is doing the exact same thing they did before in the wilderness, where the leaders, the representatives of Israel are saying, God, are you good? God, why are you blaspheming? God, why are you doing all this evil stuff? We want to hold on to our power. We don't want you here. And so they take Jesus to trial. They put him in the courtroom, and he lets himself be struck down on the cross. And then you know what came out of Jesus on the cross? Blood and water. And what that means is salvation. Every blessing, every spiritual blessing is in Christ. And in Christ, you have every spiritual blessing. Because Jesus was willing they asked the question, Israel asked the question, you asked the question, is God among us or not? How does God respond? He says, I'm right here. I'm going to stand here. I'm going to let you accuse me. And even though you deserve punishment, I'm going to take on the punishment. I treat my enemies like my friends. When they kill me, when they hurt me, I don't bleed blood. I bleed salvation and grace and mercy. This is so incredible. This is a beautiful revelation of the nature of God, the character of God. And so in the moments where you don't remember this, it is a tragedy because God is not, like you can accuse God all you want, even when you accuse him. He wants you to remember what he's like and even when you accuse him, he will save you, he will deliver you because that's just how gracious he is. But don't stay that way. Are you going to learn from what God has done in the past? 
And then especially, if your life is especially hard and you feel like God has totally hung you out to dry because your life suffering is so unique and terrible and difficult, all I would say is look at Jesus. Look at his life. Was his life terrible and difficult and full of suffering and pain and death and abandonment? Yes, it was. And he did that for you so he could understand what you're going through, but even more than that, so he could give you assurance. He could assure you that even when God uh, sent Jesus to the cross, God didn't abandon him. Jesus said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But God did not leave Jesus forsaken because he rose him from the grave and he exalted him above any other name in heaven or on earth. And so do you know how to remember the cross. Um, there's a song called, uh, there's an old hymn called When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And I think this is one application for us. The word survey is to reflect, to meditate, to look at, to see the whole scope and expanse and beauty of the cross. And so if you're going through the spiritual amnesia, if you're grumbling with God, if you're angry, if you're quarreling, look at the cross. How does God treat enemies? How did God treat you when you were a sinner who accused him? He was willing to die for you. And out of him, when you prick him, he bleeds grace. He bleeds mercy. This is the rock. The rock was Christ. The rock foreshadows what Jesus did on the cross. And when you really get this, this is what it means to be a Christian. When you really get this, when you realize that God loves and dies for even his enemies, even sinners like me, that helps you trust him when you feel like he's abandoned you. Will you turn to the rock for salvation if you're thirsty? If you feel like life is empty, if you feel like you're missing something, Jesus is the rock, the fount of every blessing. If you're already a believer who doesn't, who's really struggling with God, will you remember what God did on the cross in sending Jesus and will you turn to him for provision and sustenance and grace? And will this strengthen you? This will strengthen you in the wilderness. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, um, I praise you for your grace. I praise you for how you are so beyond what we could fathom um, in how merciful you are and how compassionate you are to us, even at our worst. Um, and so I pray, Father, that we would see truly who you are and that would help us turn to you in times of suffering and difficulty. I pray, Father, that by your word you would give special comfort to those people who might be going through especially difficult suffering. I pray you would refine their faith, grow them, comfort them, that they might be able to share incredible testimonies in the future of what you've done for them and how you've been faithful, even when they couldn't see it. Um, and then I pray, Lord, that uh, by the preaching of your gospel, uh, you would be saving people and bringing people to you, to trust you, to know you, um, to put their faith and hope in Jesus Christ and nothing else. Um, we pray you would do this through our church, and we thank you for all the amazing things you've done and look forward to what you will do in the future. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.